Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, the role of Children's Commissioner is one of the most high-profile advocacy figures in New Zealand society. The Children's Commissioner wants Oranga Tamariki's powers transferred to iwi and hapū, saying the current system does not serve Māori. Children's Commissioner wants Oranga Tamariki to make public how it deals with staff found to have abused children in their care. Andrew Beecroft is now calling for fundamental change at the Children's Ministry, and he's on the line now. Morena. Morena. But the future of this role is up in the air. Legislation would replace the Children's Commissioner role with a new Children and Young Persons Commission, which would be run by a board of three to six members. However, this proposed legislation has raised alarm bells. It basically says to those who currently hold positions in independent Crown entities that if you do your job too well, if you make yourself too unpopular, if you advocate as you're required to advocate, then you run the risk of being emasculated. Previous commissioners are against the idea. To attack this office and the previous commissioners anonymously and with no evidence just seems to me to be fundamentally wrong. As is the current Children's Commissioner, Judge Francis Evers. I think the idea seems to have been that the, the role of advocacy and the role of monitoring are in conflict. I don't agree with that. So today on the podcast, what's planned, where has this idea come from, and why should we care? Professor Jonathan Boston is the chair of Victoria University's School of Government and an expert on child poverty. Let's talk maybe about these roles that we have in New Zealand, these public service commissioner roles. We have the Privacy Commissioner, the Retirement Commissioner, the Disability Commissioner, the Children's Commissioner. There are a bunch of them. What are these roles, Jonathan? Why do we have them? What are they meant to do? So, first of all, I think it's useful to understand that we have a public sector or state sector which has a range of different institutions that comprise it. We have government departments which are there to serve ministers of the day and to deliver public goods and services of various kinds. And then we have uh, a whole series of crown entities, some of which are crown agents, and they're there to kind of do (laughs) what governments ask them to do. We have autonomous crown entities, and then we have independent crown entities. And independent crown entities of the kind that you've just mentioned uh, exist for a number of reasons. We have about 20 of them, and they're there to, first of all, monitor independently uh, the use of public power. The state in modern uh, societies like ours, uh, has enormous power and and, an enormous sort of sweep of responsibilities. And one of the critical needs we have to ensure kind of a constitutional democracy and to protect the rights of citizens is to ensure that public power is used legally and thoughtfully and effectively and reasonably and so on. And so one of the functions of independent crown entities like the Human Rights Commission, uh, the Independent Police Conduct Authority, the Children's Commissioner and so on, is to ensure that public power is used well. So there's a monitoring function. Then there's an advisory function to offer advice to ministers on the basis of the areas of responsibility they have and and the kind of work they do. There's obviously, uh, in some cases, a responsibility to review the operations of the private sector, the Commerce Commission, the Electricity Authority, the Financial Markets Authority, and so on. And they're there to kind of regulate independently uh, the activities 
of private sector organisations. So these are not party political positions. Their job is not to make the government look good. It's not to smooth over data or anything like that. Their job is to monitor and to tell the truth about the situation in their particular areas, correct? Yes. So the independent crown entities are established as sort of distant (laughs) from ministerial uh, responsibility as as you can get, if I can put it that way. They're 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 designed uh, to be able to uh, hold governments to account, indeed, to comment on the activities of ministers in some situations, and to be able to do that under a legislative framework which gives them, you know, considerable independence and impartiality and so forth. And you know, there's a very good reason for having these sorts of organisations, as I've mentioned, because governments have you know, very significant powers and responsibilities, and those powers and responsibilities can be misused. Looking specifically at the Children's Commissioner now, it's a big old question, but what does the Children's Commissioner do? Well, under its current Act, which is the Children's Commissioner Act 2003, the Commissioner has a pretty extensive list of functions. First of all, there are general functions. They include, briefly, um, investigating decisions which may affect any child. Uh, Secondly, to uh, raise public awareness regarding children's issues, and and particularly in relation to the United Nations Convention on on the Rights of the Child. So this is raising awareness really about the the rights, interests, and well-being or welfare of children. Thirdly, it has an advocacy role on on behalf of children. Uh, Fourthly, a research responsibility. Fifthly, uh, the the Commissioner has a responsibility to promote accessible and effective complaints mechanisms. Sixthly, the Commissioner has a responsibility to promote children's participation in kind of public life. And within that general sphere of responsibilities, the Commissioner has uh, a right to report directly to the Prime Minister, whether or not the Prime Minister wishes to receive uh, a report. (laughs) And then secondly, there, there are functions in Section 13 of the Uh, Children's uh, Commissioner Act, which relates specifically to uh, Orangutan Mariki and the kind of Orangutan Mariki system. And and there, briefly, there are three key responsibilities. One is to monitor and assess the policies and practices of Orangutan Mariki and other organisations with care or custody responsibilities within the care and sort of protection system. Secondly, to encourage the development of policies and practices to promote the welfare of children within the care and protection system. And thirdly, to uh, offer advice to ministers, presumably advice on uh, how we might improve. Is the idea behind there being a children's commissioner, you know, the idea that, like, children are precious and we want the best for our children. Policies the government sets can have a big impact on the world that children grow up in and develop in, and therefore... We should be really up to date and we should know what the situation is when it comes to the government making rules and setting policy around this because of this great responsibility and because of the high stakes. Yes, absolutely. You summarised it well, Emil. I suppose very simply, children are precious and valuable, as you rightly say. Uh, Secondly, uh, children don't have a vote and many cannot speak on their own behalf. Mm. And thirdly, many children are very vulnerable. Uh, They are vulnerable to uh, parental neglect and and abuse. They can be vulnerable to a variety of other things that affect their their well-being, material hardship, poverty, and so forth. And if you don't have a powerful public voice 
<laughs> representing the rights, interests and well-being of children, then the society will lack, uh, you know, a significant capacity to protect the interests of children. Which brings us to the Oversight of the Oranga Tamariki System and Children and Young People's Commission Bill. I asked Newsroom's National Affairs Editor Sam Suchdeva to explain a bit about the background to this and what it's proposing. They've been looking at reform basically since they, they came in in, in 2017 really. The Labour Party was quite critical of, of how sort of uh, the national government had handled parts of it. And then we've had the... Um, you know, issues around uplifts of, of children, as we saw in the taken by the state investigation by, by newsrooms, Melanie Reid. So there's been, in terms of broader discussions around how our, you know, uh, state care system and the sort of watchdog roles for that are set up, that's, yeah, been, been in train for, for a while, I'd say. Okay. In as organised a way as possible, can you kind of take me through how things are at the moment and how these proposed changes would change things? Yeah. I'll, um, I'll do my best. It is, it is a patchwork of, uh, of changes to various bits of the law, but there are kind of two main components to it that have, have sort of created the most concern or debate. And so the first one is obviously at the moment we have a uh, children's commissioner that's a sort of a single person who kind of acts as a, a watchdog uh, on the government and, and government agency the, for the rights of children. And until recently that was Judge Andrew Beecroft. Now it's Francis Evers. And, yeah, the idea is to, to sort of have an advocate for the rights of children, someone who is independent of the government and, and can put them on the spot and say, look, this law that you're planning, you're doing it wrong, this policy is it's not quite right. Children facing mental health crises need the best mental health care, not being strapped down in solitary confinement in police cells. I think we want the state to shrink and we want iwi, Māori and community organisations to grow and to provide the right support at the coalface. And, you know, they've been very forceful over the years, uh, having roles in, in the anti-smacking law. We were caned at school and strapped at primary school for one reason and another. Generally, it's sort of bewildering to children. It's rather brutal, isn't it? The idea that you hurt your children, uh, make them cry, uh, why would you do that? Um, the detention of young people in, in jails and, and yes, the, the performance of Oranga Tamariki. So what, what the government has said is, look, with the sort of reforms we're taking and the changes we're looking at and the concerns that have been raised about the system, the, the job is too big for one person. You can't have a single person doing it by themselves. So they want to replace the commissioner as a single person with a commission of, I think it's between three and six people, a team essentially. And, you know, that sounds good in theory. Of course, it's great to have um, you know, more hands on deck. But the concern that's been expressed from a, a few different uh, ch you know, child charity advocates and, and former children's commissioners is that it kind of dilutes the power of the children's commissioner, where you've got one person who is the, the face of the, the office, so to speak, and can, you know, do the media rounds and can write op-eds and and harangue ministers if they need to. If we're saying that this task of 
standing up for children's rights and, and advocating for them and monitoring the institution of, of state care is too big for a commissioner, then we're saying it's too big for other commissioners as well. It's too big for CEOs of government, large government departments. It's too big for everybody. So we don't accept that at all. And the yeah, fear seems to be that you sort of dilute or undercut the office if you're kind of spreading it out a little bit. The second relates to this work on beefing up monitoring. So they, they back this, and this is actually a couple years ago that they put this in place. It was mid 2019. They said, look, we need an independent children's monitor to look at Oranga Tamariki and check whether it's actually meeting the rules and regulations and guidelines that we put in place. Because that was, that was what we saw with the uplifts is, is sort of what the law said and what some people expected should be happening wasn't. Mm. So the, the initial plan was to put that with the Office of the Children's Commissioner, that it would move from MSD to, to that office. And then there was sort of a, um, a change of heart. I think it might have been early last year, 2021, where they said, oh, look, actually, we don't think that's the best fit. Uh, you know, the Children's Commissioner is meant to be an advocate for children. It's an advocacy role. And monitoring and advocacy are, are sort of too, too conflicting. So we need to have it somewhere else. So what they decided was to put it in the um, within the education review office. It's called a departmental agency uh, model. It's a little bit technical, but yeah, basically sitting with an arrow using its resources with a degree of independence. But the issue that's come up is, you know, people are saying it is not as independent as it should be. You've got, you know, the Children's Commission at the moment is, is truly sort of outside of the system. And the fear from some as well, if you put, put this new monitor within a government agency, and say, look, uh, yeah, please, please trust, please trust this uh, this monitor. They're going to do the work, but you know, you kind of know that everything might be feeding back to the government. Will, will people trust them as much as they would otherwise? Here is the former children's commissioner Russell Wills. We're talking about a group of commissioners nominated by the public service, with no lead person in a government agency. It's that can't be independent despite the name and what the legislation aims for it just won't be and it won't be seen to be independent and it won't be trusted and that matters because families and children won't come forward and we won't know whether all these changes that have been made to the care and protection system are better or worse or just the same so ultimately it's about the independence of the role and the trust that's generated from that. Back to Jonathan Boston. Is there a case for separating out monitoring and advocacy? In my view, no. The government has provided no persuasive, uh, let alone conclusive reason, why the roles of monitoring and advocacy should be separated. The two functions are kind of inherently connected. If you undertake a monitoring function, which involves you know, observing and appraising and assessing, necessarily that's going to lead, if you're going to do your job effectively at all, to recommending changes. Well, that's advocacy. And, and if you're established as an advocacy body, in order to do your advocacy, you need to know something about what it is you're advocating. And that means you need to be undertaking monitoring so the two functions of monitoring and advocacy are simply inherently interconnected. And secondly, if the children's commissioner role is too big uh, for one person, well, why is it that 
the so-called independent monitor role is too big for a single person? And, and why is the role of the public service commissioner who will be appointing the independent monitor, why is the public service commissioner role too big uh, for one person? And, and so on and so on. And, and clearly, I mean, it's just laughable, Emil, which suggests to me that, in, in fact, this is this is not the main reason for changing the structure of the commission at all. I, I think a, a fair reading of of what is going on is that recent children's commissioners, and particularly probably Russell uh, uh, Wills and and Andrew Beecroft, have caused considerable embarrassment to various ministers and senior officials, and uh, probably a lot of frustration. And people have conferred and they've come to the view that somehow uh, we need to neuter <laughs> the office and thus uh, minimise the kind of embarrassment that these people have offered. Here's that problematic Russell Wells speaking to RNZ's Catherine Ryan. We have lived in an environment for some years now of the so-called no surprises policy. Mm-hmm. Has over time morphed into anything that might surprise or embarrass a minister or provide a problem for a minister has to be kind of managed away as well. Is this another example of an inability to tolerate publicly speaking truth to power? It's a really good question, Catherine. <clears throat> I think no surprises is important because if you're going to influence, sometimes you have to do that from within the tent. The problem here is eviscerating and dismantling an independent crown entity because that is an attack on all the independent crown entities. These are absolutely vital checks on the exercise of power on vulnerable people in our country. And that's why their monitoring and advice role and the advocacy role must be kept together. You describe this as some of the worst legislation you've ever seen. Can it be improved, do you think? Or would you, were you in charge, and you're not in charge, but were you in charge, throw this out and start again? Can it be improved? What is the situation, do you think? Well, the first thing to say is, yes, if I was in charge, I would not proceed with this legislation. Can the legislation be improved? Yes, it can, if the bill is proceeded with. And I have suggested some things that could be done that would uh, reduce some of the worst aspects of it. Um, uh, with respect to the independent commissioner, uh, my view is you could insert a provision in the bill requiring the independent commissioner to act independently of the responsible minister in undertaking his or her functions and duties and exercising his or her powers. You could include a provision requiring the independent monitor to make recommendations to the responsible minister and to other entities as appropriate. So there's a definite requirement there to, to make recommendations, not just to sort of produce some sort of bland report. And I would delete the provision currently in the legislation, which requires the independent monitor to, quote, support the public trust and confidence in the OTS system. Well, that seems an outrageous line, outlandish, the idea that that line is in there. Yeah, it it highlights that the drafters of this legislation do not want an independent monitor. They want a monitor who will, quote, support public trust and confidence in the system, even if there's no basis for having yeah. public <laughs> trust or confidence in the system. Yeah. So, so those sorts of changes could be made in relation to the proposed children's 
uh, uh, Children and Young People's Commission, if we're going to have a commission rather than a single commissioner, I would strongly recommend that be a full-time chief commissioner and that the legislation ensures that that chief commissioner can continue to report to the prime minister. I would also delete the current provision in the legislation, which restricts those who can be nominated as commissioners to those who, I quote, have been endorsed by a relevant agency, mm. which is clearly another provision uh, designed to try and, in my view, you know, neuter the commission. People who are listening to this podcast, why should they care about this? I mean, we're talking about a lot of bureaucratic stuff, a lot about legislation. There's a lot of sort of technical language that we've used today. But bring it down to its surface level for me. Why should people who are listening to this care? Well, first of all, because children are precious and they matter and we need to protect their rights, interests and well-being. Secondly, there are lots of vulnerable children in this country who have not been well served by the care and protection system and who deserve better. Thirdly, because the legislation that's proposed um, will reduce uh, the incentives and the capacity to advocate on behalf of children uh, in general and, and potentially also in relation to the care and protection system. And, and thus there's a risk in the medium to long term, things will be worse uh, for children, including vulnerable children than they would otherwise uh, have been. And, and fourth, I think we should seek to resist any effort by governments to undermine the role of independent crown entities, which have been doing a good job. This legislation sends a very bad signal. It basically says to those who currently hold positions in independent crown entities, that if you do your job too well, if you make yourself too unpopular, if you advocate as you're required to advocate and, and provide advice of the kind that you're required to provide and monitor in the way that you're required to monitor, you do that, quote, too well, then you run the risk of being emasculated. And that kind of signal is a terrible one for a constitutional democracy like New Zealand. We should be sending the opposite signals. We should be saying, if you do your job well as a Crown, independent Crown entity, you should be uh, applauded and, and, and kind of rewarded and, and, and supported, not gunned down. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Sam Suchdaver and Professor Jonathan Boston. Matewa.